I think throughout this journey, I never wanted my role as a care partner for somebody with Alzheimer's disease to define me. That that was one of many roles I have in life. And I have kept that role. So I'll always view myself as a care partner for someone with Alzheimer's, but I have many other aspects to who I am. Welcome to Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient-centered nonprofit organization. Your host, Meryl Comer, is a co-founder, 24-year caregiver, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Slow Dancing with a Stranger. This is Brainstorm, and I'm Meryl Comer, with part two of Breaking Through the Silence and Stigma of Alzheimer's Disease. My guest, Lee Callahan, a respected epidemiologist and outcomes researcher, shares how she and her husband, John, became patient advocates and what she wishes doctors had told her. I asked Lee why and at what stage in John's disease did they participate in ADPACE, the Alzheimer's Disease Patient and Caregiver Engagement Initiative, a public-private partnership led by Us Against Alzheimer's. Lee, was John in an early stage in the disease where he could actively engage, and did it satisfy his needs? He was in an early stage, and it was a godsend. We're both researchers, we're both professors of medicine, and we want to approach the world analytically. And I think for him to be able to contribute to the processes that were going on in terms of trying to understand what matters most to the person with arthritis, as well as what the person with arthritis and care partner's voice brings to the table, was very important and made him feel like, okay, I'm still valued. And his opinion was valued. And he heard people either commenting or remarking about his input. And it made a real difference to him. And it made a difference to me. What is the value add of defining new outcomes about what matters most to patients and caregivers? Why not just use the standardized memory and cognitive research tools? I think the biggest value added is providing more tools in the toolbox for the clinicians to try to understand, is this intervention, whether it's therapeutic or a behavioral intervention, whatever the intervention, is this intervention making a difference in the life and the quality of life of this individual? Because it's not just quantity of life with a chronic disease, it's quality of life. And if somebody's preferences of what makes them happy and makes a difference in their life can be addressed, that's huge. And if we only use standard measures or prioritize the same thing for each individual, we're not going to improve the quality of life the way we want to. Lee, we've both been on the front lines of care. In hindsight, What do you wish a doctor or someone had told you in the early stages of the disease that might have been helpful? I wish they would have communicated more directly with me. They did talk to me one-on-one, not in front of John. And I understand right now they're not biomarkers that you can say this person is on a rapid course or this person's going to be a creeper. 
we don't know. And that's hard, not knowing. But I think having a little more insights into what to expect at potential different stages or what's the inflection point that, okay, this person has now gone from mild to moderate and this is what you should be looking for for changing into that. I mean, obviously, I would have loved to have been able to have some sort of predictive model, but we're not there. Lee, I wish doctors had just been honest and said to me, we really don't know the trajectory of your husband's disease. Instead, they predicted he'd last four to five years. I cared for my husband, Harvey, for 24 years. Had I not worked and done 12-hour shifts every day, we would have been bankrupt because he had no long-term care insurance. So I feel educating the physician is as important as educating the patients and the caregivers. Lee, in hindsight, has the Alzheimer's journey changed you? And if so, in what way? Yes, it's changed me profoundly. I learn to live in the moment. I am a high energy driven individual. And you know very well, Meryl, you cannot just go boom, boom, boom when you're living with someone with Alzheimer's. I never knew when I came home from work if I was going to get a happy, relaxed John or if I was going to get a John who was not agitated, but just edgy. And whether we were going to be sort of doing a dance in the evening of trying to get things calm, or whether we were just going to have a special, relaxing evening. And I learned to go with flow a lot better than I would ever have predicted. Are there any other insights like that you might offer? It's sort of like you talking about capturing (laughs) the hallucination in a pillowcase. Sometimes you just do whatever you have to do. And a good example is one night, John was sure that we were supposed to be at some event on campus. And there was no way I was going to talk him out of it. So we, I just got in the car and I said, well, fine, you tell me where to go. Well, after we drove around a while, he realized that he didn't know where we were supposed to go and there was not such an event. I just took him into a restaurant and we had dinner. But I didn't walk in the house thinking I was going to be driving around. Leon, on the issue of letting a loved one drive when they have dementia, I think there is an angst about being preemptive and taking away the car keys because it's so linked to one's independence. Did you let the doctor do that or were you able to do it? I failed and let the doctor. The doctor did prescribe there's an occupational therapist to do a driving test and John didn't pass that test. And, oh, he was really angry about that. But not angry at me. He was angry at her. And I just then said, well, we can't have you drive. If this is in your record, we would be sued if something happened. Leah, all the things that we've done, I locked my husband's car in the garage. And he asked, where's my car? Every day for five years, and for every day for five years, I told him it was in the shop. But it didn't matter. You know, you have to find a space where you can live in good conscience, that you haven't endangered anybody else in trying to respect their independence. So it's very tricky. It's very tricky. Lee, is it easy, or do you have to remind yourself about living in the moment? I do. Because you're living in the moment in their reality. 
I have noticed that people either want to escape the disease after their loved ones have passed, or they become the advocate. And we all find our own space there. But I just didn't know what impact it's had on you. I think throughout this journey, I never wanted my role as a care partner for somebody with Alzheimer's disease to define me. That that was one of many roles I have in life. And I have kept that role. So I'll always view myself as a care partner for someone with Alzheimer's, but I have many other aspects to who I am. I think the thing that galvanized me is I want to do whatever I can to help other people who embark on the journey that you and I have been on, whether that's providing my insights to help research with A.D. Pace and the What Matters Most study, or whether it's talking to someone. Many times people say, oh, may I have so-and-so call you? And I'm like, please do. So I want to be available however I can help the best. You know, when people are in the middle of the Alzheimer's journey with a loved one, it's really hard to have any insight into what's really going on. I mean, you're living in that moment with such energy, angst, you can be depressed. You know, in hindsight, I think researchers miss a valuable contribution by not talking to former caregivers because we don't forget that journey. It stays with us. I think you're spot on. I look back now and I think I was in survival mode and I was just doing whatever I needed to do to survive and keep everything going. And now I look back and I I see a lot of different things and I think, oh, that was what was going on. You are absolutely right. Lee, let me ask you a tough question, which is one I wrestle with right now myself. We know that caregivers are six times more likely to get dementia themselves because of the intensity of the disease over time. Now, we also know the diagnosis now needs to come early. And as a care partner, we've seen the disease up close, so we know what to fear. And yet taking the step to sign up and be tested is not easy. What are your thoughts? Well, it's funny. I did 23andMe, and I immediately did the health thing. I mean, not that that's definitive, but I wanted to know. And it was interesting because Deborah said, you did the health thing? Did you want to know? And I was like, yeah. I said, knowledge is power to me. And I wanted to know. I would do stuff, but that's just because that's my personality. I needed to know because I thought I was going to drop dead of a heart attack while caring for my husband. And I did find out, like you, Lee, that I was a 3-4 because my mother later ended up with the disease as well. And as you know, when it's on the maternal side, it increases your risk. But what I admire in many of the advocates who have been diagnosed now is they're trying to normalize that space where they have to live and give up a bit of autonomy to keep their autonomy. Yes. And I've just said to somebody the other day, I said, well, the whole thing with this disease is if you can keep somebody autonomous two to three more years, that is huge. And that's worth a lot. Leah, I really think it's important that we begin to normalize what mild cognitive impairment is about so that people are not marginalized or labeled or stigmatized because of this disease. 
I have neighbors who have a good friend. They've watched her friend decline. And the care partner, someone the woman's lived with forever, he was just denying everything and saying, no, I don't think there's any issue. And if she would only eat this diet, she would get better. And she's not doing the right things because she won't do the, you know, and he was ordering all kinds of supplements and this, that, and the other. And it's been a struggle for the friends to watch how he's responded and be there for her. And I've given them all the books I have and I talk to them. It's very interesting. And they felt like he was almost blaming her. Like if you just did this, you would get better. Every story is slightly different. I have a friend who worked in the aging services and she used to say, if you've seen one senior center, you've seen one senior center. If you've seen one Alzheimer's family, you've seen one Alzheimer's family. Everybody is nuanced. Well, Lee, thank you for your candor, insights, advocacy, and your great advice to caregivers to keep something that is separate that defines them because you can get lost in the disease with your loved one. Our guest has been noted epidemiologist and researcher Lee Callahan with her personal reasons for breaking through the silence and stigma of Alzheimer's disease. That's it for this edition. I'm Meryl Comer. Thank you for brainstorming with us. Our team is on a mission to help you stay up with the latest scientific breakthroughs, from new therapies to technologies on early diagnosis and personal brain health advice from well-known experts using an equity lens that promotes brain health for all. Now, we'd like to hear what's on your mind. What are the topics and guests you'd like to hear featured on Brainstorm? Send your comments to brainstorm at usagainstalzheimers.org. That's it for this edition. I'm Errol Comer. Thank you for brainstorming with us. Support for Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's comes from Otsuka and Lundbeck. Subscribe to Brainstorm on your favorite podcast platform and join us on the first and third Tuesday of every month.